The Athletic. Jose Mourinho has been Tottenham manager for 15 months, three transfer windows and 75 matches. And yet he says that there are problems in the team that he cannot resolve by himself as a coach. In which case, after five defeats in the last six league games and 12 points in the last 12, we have to ask, who else's fault can it be? My name is Jack Pitbrook, you're listening to the View From The Lane podcast. I'm joined today, as always, by James Moore and later on by our special guest, Dom Fifield. Well, James, after watching Tottenham's defeat at West Ham on Sunday, who else's fault can it be? Uh, I mean, you can't you can't overlook those individual errors, and we've talked about the the defensive errors many many times over the course of the season, except in that kind of six week sweet spot uh, in the autumn. But I mean, in defending on both of those goals, I know a lot was said about the defending on the first goal and the fact that that Dyer let the man run and just com- basically was completely flat footed from that cross. But for me, the second goal was bad as well. Like Sanchez and Dyer, both kind of seemingly making kind of independent movements from each other and not not knowing where the other one had gone, pushing right up when at least one of her fullbacks was much deeper. I mean, it was just an absolute shambles. But as we know, and as we have discussed before, all of that does come back to the manager. So sure, I, I think it would be incredibly unfair to say the manager was entirely to blame for that defeat and for Spurs' general slump over the last two months or three months but he has to shoulder a decent percentage of that I'd say. I agree with you like I find it kind of surprising that Mourinho thinks that the fact that the defenders are are playing so badly which they clearly are you know nobody nobody would claim that Eric Dyer, Alderweire or Sanchez is having a good season and yet Mourinho seems to think that their badness reflects badly only on them rather than badly on himself, which I'm sure, which I think has to be the reality of the situation. You know, the ultimately, the manager has paid quite a lot of money, in his case, to get the players to play well. And if the players aren't playing well, then ultimately the buck has to stop with the manager rather than the players. That To me, that just seems like a really fundamental point about how modern football works and the expectations that we might have as whether it's as fans or as journalists or even in the boardroom is that of course it's very you know people always love to say oh the players have got to take responsibility the players have got to take responsibility but the fact is they don't in modern football the players don't take responsibility the manager takes responsibility and yet Mourinho is not taking responsibility for the very bad form of the defenders James. He said before that Marine game and he made a point of telling the world that he had said this he claims to have gone to the players before that game and said, if we lose a Premier League game, it's my fault. It's on me. But if you lose this game to a, to a non-league side, then it's your fault. It's on you. So in that moment, he was quite happy to concede that if they were losing games in the Premier League, that it was his fault. It was on him and he had to shoulder that burden. Well, since then, they've lost five Premier League games, is it, I think. Uh, and he doesn't seem to be willing to shoulder any of that. I mean, you talk about the defence there. And he he can complain about individual errors all he wants, but the reality is he he is picking the centre-back combination that seems to not be working particularly well. This Dyer and Sanchez combination. Uh, I spent a bit of time last night doing an incredibly unscientific bit of research and I have discovered that Dyer and Sanchez have played six Premier League games as a pair, as a two this season. Spurs have one draw, one, two, drawn two and lost two. Conceded ten. So they've had average points of 1.33 and average goals conceded of 
Uh, and both of the combinations with Alderweireld, so Alderweireld with Sanchez and Alderweireld with Dyer, have both performed far better. It just seems to be that, that, that those back-to-back defeats in December to Liverpool and Leicester just completely put Mourinho off the idea of playing Dyer and Alderweireld for some reason. And, and you know, uh, the second goal in particular they conceded against Leicester was pretty terrible. Yeah, um, it was really bad. It was bad. An Alderweireld and goal, I think he was probably less culpable than a couple of other players there. Uh, but since then, I think he played that combination. I think he's used it once against Chelsea. I think, and it just seems mad to me that that is that that seems. I mean, for what it's worth, I mean, the point, the average points of that combination, one point seven three, which um, you know, it isn't exactly incredible. Isn't going to be like enough to get you into the Champions League if you if you extrapolate that over thirty eight matches. I think it would be about sixty five points or something like that. Um, but the average goal conceded is way lower. It's zero point seven three. So, you know, it, it kind of seems to me that it is quite odd that having seen this like terrible kind of cacophony of defensive blunders by various players, including Alderweireld, but, but it does seem odd that Alderweireld is, it has been involved in the more statistically impressive partnerships, but not been picked regularly over the last kind of two or three months. And I mean, it does seem quite, quite, it's incredibly easy to say he's not been in the team as much over the last three months and they've been performing much worse, but... That is also true. Yeah, so the, the other times they've played it recently have been, this is since the lesser defeat, Leeds, which of course they won, Chelsea at home, which they lost, but they weren't actually that bad looking back on it, and Wolfsburg away, where they won against a very, very limited opposition. So even the rare occasions that he has done it, it's not been disastrously bad. I can understand the point that, you know, if you play two slow guys together, you're at much bigger risk of getting hit in behind, which has been a problem that Spurs have had, I suppose. And maybe he feels it unbalances the team to play that way. I mean, that is a good point, but I'm not sure that having Santos in there at the moment is necessarily negating that. I mean, you've seen some no. of the sort of... Uh, in the cup game against Everton, where Sanchez, I mean... Uh, do you know the thing I'm talking about in the second half or maybe an extra time where he kind of stumbled on the ball... And Everton didn't score. Actually, no, it's actually, talk, tell you what, it was the end of the first half at 3-1, I think, yeah. maybe. And it looked like an absolutely hideous blunder. And in the end, I think maybe Lloris recovered and they didn't concede. But I wouldn't say Sanchez was a player who kind of filled me with confidence in terms of kind of recovery. Uh, you know, he seemed, you know, and we saw it on that, on that um, Lingard goal on Sunday. You know, there was space in behind that Lingard found. It wasn't like Sanchez got back to cut it out. no. And it feels like like better organisation may be more useful than those powers of recovery at the moment. Champions League and Europa League football are back and there's no better time to sign up for all of our unrivaled coverage at The Athletic. Until February the 25th, we're offering new subscribers a half-price annual subscription. That's less than £1 per week for an entire year. To redeem that limited time only offer, go to theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. That's theathletic.com forward slash SpursPod. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. Let's talk about the second half a bit because the second half was better and you know we've been been, it is relative, but they you know they well they scored a goal. They scored a goal. They hit the post, Gareth Bale hit the bar. They played actually some pretty good attacking football in the second half, but it obviously wasn't enough, James. Although you know, with a bit of luck, it could have been enough. But even if they had a, even if they had a drawn two all, I don't, th- I don't get the impression, James, that you would have been very happy with the overall flow of the afternoon. 
I mean, look, if they'd come back to draw the game having been 2-0 down, you know, that that sort of... I guess that would be papering over the cracks a little bit, maybe. You'd feel quite happy that they came back, but I don't think in the longer term it would be telling you too much. You know, it was encouraging to see Gareth Bale come into a game and actually actually do kind of positive, tangible things on the pitch. An assist and a couple of decent efforts on goal, obviously the one that hit the crossbar in particular. And he did look like, I mean, probably still not quite the Gareth Bale of 2012-13, but somewhere approaching that, as close as we've seen to that in the last seven, eight months, certainly. It was the most Gareth Bailey type yeah. performance. He, I, I thought Wolfsberger was an improvement last week. Absolutely, and then yeah, this absolutely. was another another big step in the right direction. So if I had one thing to be positive and rally about after Sunday, which I thought was pretty miserable, all things considered, then that would definitely be Bale. But I wouldn't say that was necessarily like a big sort of tactical masterstroke to chuck him on at half time. It was kind of like the Hail Mary pass, wasn't it? It was kind of... Uh, it, it was kind of more of the same of what we see in terms of the way Spurs try to attack, isn't it? It's that kind of individualism. Occasionally, yeah. you know, occasionally there'll be little exchanges of passes, but I don't think you saw loads of like good football in the attacking third. If you see what I mean, it wasn't like Spurs carved West Ham open too many times. Um, the one exception maybe being the, the 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 time Kane got into space out wide and tried to square it to Deli Alley, and it was cleared immediately before that shot that Bale had off the bar. Yeah, but other than that, it was kind of. You know that like like clearances off Son Shin that hit the post and you know shots from you know that came free kick from the edge of the box and whatever that was there was a, a nicely struck free kick obviously just off target um, but I do, yeah it wasn't like there were lots of kind of cha- good chances from open play you know where where Spurs carved this deep West Ham defence in two it was kind of only really marginally better and as you say it's only really the momentum and the fact that they scored the you know if they had gone. 1-0 down, equalised and lost the game 2-1 in a similar sort of game. I don't think you'd be kind of saying, well, they played well in the second half because you know, it still looks quite shaky. And actually, I don't think West Ham had a shot after the second goal. But there were still kind of moments where Spurs looked quite shaky in the back and it looked like... There was that one where Lloris at 2-1 kind of... It was a bit of an air kick, wasn't it? He kind of hoofed it straight up into oh, yeah, the air yeah. and to recover. There were certainly a few shaky moments after that, even if they didn't actually have like a proper chance. It wouldn't have been entirely inconceivable to think that West Ham might have got another goal even though it yeah, really yeah. wasn't really their priority in the game. And I think as you wrote in your piece and as you tweeted after the game, West Ham sat in and were trying to defend in the way that Spurs have done in games against better teams over the course of this season. You know, the Man City game and the Arsenal game, um, the Chelsea away game. So it was a similar sort of thing. I think West Ham's approach is kind of quite similar to Spurs, actually. Yeah, totally. They got Jose. Yeah, exactly. They, they did yeah. it again. And that's not the first time that's happened recently, is it? Spurs got Jose. You could totally see, I mean, adjusting for the slightly different qualities of the players involved but if you can imagine like a Spurs team without Harry Kane for example they would have played more or less like that the way that they you know scored an ugly goal early on sat back and defended then scored you know, even the goal that Lingard scored at the start of the second half is exactly the kind of goal that we've seen Son score plenty of this yeah, year yeah, yeah, yeah. and last year it was a really Sonny type goal it was really good and they got mourinho and that's why I think all this um people saying that I got slightly annoyed last night when I saw, not a lot, but in, enough people saying, oh, you know, Spurs are much better because Spurs dominated in the second half. That was much better, wasn't it? And I was thinking, well, they dominated because they were losing. They didn't dominate because they were good. It was, you know, if Spurs had scored, they would have defended and West Ham would have dominated possession. So you can't use Spurs' territorial dominance as proof that they were good. Like, they dominated because they were 2-0 down and they wouldn't really have played like that at 0-0. I think you can broadly say it was like a step in, a, a very small step in the right direction fine 
But in that game, they needed a massive step in the right direction because that game was huge in terms of like, not just Champions League qualification, which as I think we've said before, is probably gone already. But in terms of Europa League qualification, and if you look at the table now, you know, like West Ham are fourth and if you look at their next kind of five or six games, they're playing quite a lot of good teams and you would expect them to drop points and they'll probably fall away. So actually, in a funny way, West Ham maybe will still be catchable, but you know, Spurs aren't going to overhaul West Ham and Chelsea and Liverpool and uh, you know whoever Everton, Aston Villa, whoever else, and you know it's just not going to happen. What's quite interesting for me actually, you mentioned uh, Spurs getting Jose'd. If you look at that, if you look at that West Ham team, and Mourinho has kind of made a point of, well, not made a point of subtly trying to hint that he doesn't think the players are good enough, particularly the defenders. And I know that's what a lot of Mourinho's advocates are saying at the moment that there's not a lot more he can do with those defenders he's got at his disposal, but. Craig Dawson is playing centre back for West Ham, right? I mean, he's not. You know, <laughs> yeah. Craig Dawson was not like at the World Cup two or three years ago, like Dyer and Alderweireld and Sanchez. Craig Dawson, you know, hasn't played in the Champions League final like a couple of those players or semi finals like all three of them have. So, uh, you know, and this isn't me digging out Craig Dawson, by the way. It's me saying, like, with the right coaching in the right system, uh, with the right players around him and playing, you know, in a suitable fashion, players can perform to a higher level in the Premier League without making an absolute shed load of mistakes. I mean, that just seems incredibly obvious to me. And then you look through the rest of that West Ham team, you know. And again, this is not, but do not, please don't think this is me saying these are not good players because clearly they are. But like guys like Suchek and Kufal, the two lads that they've signed for next to nothing from the Czech League who have been absolutely fantastic for them this season. Yeah. It's not like, you know, you need to spend £50 million on a screen yard to get good players, good defensive players. You know, I think they've been two of the better players. And obviously Suchek has scored loads of goals this season, but really he's kind of a, a, a sort of defensive midfield player, really, isn't he? Um, sort of Fellaini yeah he, well yeah but I mean Kufal Sufal whichever way it is apologies he's been one of the better fullbacks in the league this, defensively certainly been one of the better fullbacks in the league this season hasn't he he's been really good and it's kind of you know <laughs> and Moyes' coaching will be a big part of that as well there's no there's no way that that's just like a complete coincidence that that's happened he, they've, they've signed two players who are suited to their system and got them to play in a way that suits not just them but the whole team and that seems to be one of the areas Mourinho is falling down it's just kind of expecting these players just to just to perform without it, it just feels like they're, they're, they're I don't know it just feels like they're not a team it feels like they're all individuals even the defence which is just the last thing you'd expect of a Mourinho team but it doesn't seem like there's much communication there or much organisation there I mean and you've seen from those two goals it doesn't really feel like anyone's anyone's leading yeah, I completely agree with that, with all of that. I think, you know, I mean, I said this the other, the other day, I think, on Twitter. Like, if Dyer and Alderweireld were as bad as some people would have you believe, Mourinho wouldn't have tried to sign them for Man United, which he did in both cases for quite a lot of money. You know, the players are fine. Like, they're not the best defenders in the world, but they're not they're not unusably bad, these guys. Like, they're fine. I mean, I can fully accept that Alderweireld isn't as good as he was no, two or three years fair. ago when he was one of the best centre-backs in the league. Fine. But there's a big difference between not being quite as good as he was in 2017 and some of the stuff we've seen this season from him. And it's the same with Dai, you know. Uh, whether or not you wanted to get into another argument over whether he's a centre-back or a centre midfield or whether he should be playing at full-back or whatever. Uh, there's a massive difference between like what we've seen, particularly in the last sort of month or so, and him not being quite as good as uh, we kind of expected him to be in 2015, 2016, 2017. There's a massive difference between those two things. And it's just a completely unnatural drop-off. And I'm not suggesting that drop-off has started the day Mourinho took over, because I think you'd probably agree that it came. It started before that. 
but it doesn't mean he's like uncoachable and he can't get back to at least somewhere near that level. It's kind of ludicrous to suggest that for me as a manager of a football team to kind of imply that these players are never going to be good enough. That's just like to me that feels like an admission of your own failings as a as a manager and a coach. That's your job to try and get the best out of these players. And you know, they may no longer be the best among the best defenders in the Premier League, but they're not that bad. I mean, look, we saw in October, November, December them keeping clean sheets against some of the best teams in the Premier League. I, I suppose they're the last team to beat Man City, weren't they, in the league, right? And they kept a clean sheet in that game. I mean, yeah, you know, it, it's mad. For, and I've mentioned this a couple of times now, but he's really kind of undermining and underselling his own work in a way. He got that working before. It's not working now. Yeah. It's not like it's an impossible task. He's already done it. It's ludicrous to suggest it's impossible when he's, when he's previously shown that it's not. It's mad. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So, for the second half of today's show, we're joined by our athletic colleague Dom Fifield to talk more about Jose Mourinho because, Dom, you've covered Chelsea for years and two months ago you wrote a brilliant piece on what Antonio Antonio Conte called the Mourinho season. That is uh, Chelsea's spectacular collapse in the 2014-15 season which obviously saw sorry the 2015-16 season I should say which saw Mourinho sacked just before Christmas uh, even though his team were the reigning Premier League champions uh, you've recounted this for the Athletic when I look back at that at that time I'm overwhelmed by the sense of kind of spectacular and like the kind of spectacularness of it and the drama and like the unprecedentedness of it is that how you remember it five years on yeah I think writing that piece rekindled some of those memories about how ludicrous it all was. Um, and and it, again, it requires a context. Chelsea won the Premier League with three games in to go the previous year in 2014-15. Um, they were top for a ridiculous amount of that of that season. I think it was something like 268 days or something stupid. Um, they only trailed for 171 minutes um, by the time they actually won the title, they trailed for 171 minutes all season. It was they were the dominant force. I mean, some of the football, particularly actually after they got absolutely pummeled at, at White Hart Lane on New Year's Day, um, they became very dour and very hard to beat, and went back into sort of typical old school Mourinho um, structure, structure, discipline, just stifle the life out of, out of games, whereas they'd actually been quite expansive initially. And But from a position of that complete dominance where they'd, they'd, they'd won the league with these three games still to play, they they unravelled in a in a manner that at the time felt unprecedented. I, I know Leicester City obviously struggled the, the following year to to recapture their their amazing season. But but this was a this was an established elite Premier League team, a, a, a Mourinho team, and a, a coach who had never been through any of this before. He got the sense that he was trying everything and failing with everything, every tactic. Every every sort of outburst in in public, every show of support, it, it all just backfired spectacularly, and 
there, there was no light at the end of the tunnel when he got the chop in uh, in December. It was um, it, it was almost a bit of a relief when that happened, and for a, for a, the greatest manager in Chelsea's history to endure that um, with the team, I think a point above the relegation zone in the middle of December was utterly unprecedented and and remarkable. Yeah, it really was amazing, wasn't it? Just how badly it went. Looking back on it, what's your what's your analysis of why? this spectacular thing happened because it can't like it can't just be the fact that they won the league and got complacent because that happens all the time like teams win the league all the time and then have a slight drop off but they never have a drop off quite like this is it like to what extent do you blame Mourinho or the players or the unique circumstance of Chelsea or modern football or what well inevitably it was a it was a a whole range of of factors uh, that, that that came together to create this perfect storm I mean you can look at the club's decision to go on a post-season tour after winning the title. Um, they went to Thailand and and Australia. Um, Chelsea never did that. They they never did post-season tours. It was that was a time when the Mourinho gave his players a break, particularly in a non-tournament year like 2015. Um, so they went off to the other side of the world, and that that sort of prolonged their sense of exhaustion after a long, draining season. Um, and also probably more significantly still made him rethink how to do pre-season for the following year for the title defense. And they, they came back like 24 hours before they, they went off on pre-season to Montreal to, to the States for a three game tour in a, in a friendly tournament that had been arranged over there. And they just weren't ready. Uh, I think when they actually got back to England, they had the, the charity shield, which was the first defeat that Mourinho had ever suffered to Arsene Wenger. They then played another friendly between that and the start of the Premier League season the following week because they just, as a group, they weren't ready for uh, for the start of a new campaign. Their transfer business that summer was slack. They they relied too heavily on the, on the, the group that had won them the title. There was no sense of we're going to freshen this up with a with another new player uh, or two, uh, you know, big name player. There, there was a somebody I spoke to on on this piece of that you know, Mourinho is a checkbook manager. Obviously, he always has been, but he likes dropping in a, a player with sharp elbows. He said to, in, into into an established squad now and again, just to to ruffle some feathers and remind everybody that standards have to be kept to a certain level. Keep that competition going. They simply wasn't that that summer. Then I mean, Pedro arrived late. That was about that. That was the biggest sort of transfer deal they did. You're counting Papi Gilabodji and Michael Hector as, you, as as two of your other major signings. Baba Rahman. I mean, these guys are well. They're infamous at Chelsea for for for, for just being failures. Unfortunately, they they never really worked out there. I think once they started so slowly and they didn't get the the, the, the big name transfer targets that we want. And there is a similarity there with with Jose at Spurs in the, in as much as he would have loved John Stones to have arrived that summer to provide a bit more cover at centre-half. Um, there were loads of players out of form at the start of the season. They settled into lower mid-table and they never got out of it. They never got out of lower mid-table. And Mourinho and his staff were not used to this, that this was all new to them. It was all new to us covering Chelsea as well. But but this was a manager who just who didn't know how to react to a, a team that was stuck in a malaise. It just, just couldn't rouse itself. And every time they, they they get the occasional result here, um, here or there, they beat Arsenal. I think Arsenal got reduced to nine men that day. And you thought, well, this is it now. They've, they've got their juices flowing. They'll, they'll kick on from here. And, and 
No, the next week they're losing at home again. And you know, the, this air of invincibility at Stanford Bridge just completely eroded when you get teams like Crystal Palace and Bournemouth coming and winning there. And it's just Bournemouth newly promoted to the division. And it just became this cycle. Um, his own mood was grim. I mean, he tried to sort of liven things up in pre-season and, and he would occasionally around the training ground, he'd be he'd try and raise spirits. There was a, the famous story of him filling his pockets full of acorns and sort of flicking them at players um, during training and then pretending it wasn't him and they'd, they'd be looking around desperate to know who'd, who'd been, who'd hit them with a, with an acorn. He, t- he took that inside to the canteen as well, but all that sort of mock joviality, you have to counter that with what he was doing with what he'd done with Eva Canero on the opening day against Swansea and the yeah. treatment that he subjected her to. And that, that was a, a disconcerting, disconcerting sort of matter that sort of hung over the club throughout the season and, and in, into his, his tenure at Manchester United subsequently. It was just, a, as I say, a perfect storm. And at no point did did Mourinho look as if he knew how to, to raise the team out of this slump. And I think that's ultimately what did for him because while the, the club wanted to back him, they'd given him a new contract after the start of the season uh, which you know was designed to take them well into the into the future as a as a partnership. Um, they they'd even given him public backing, which had never happened before. No Chelsea manager had ever had this vote of confidence, and it, and it came after a home defeat to Southampton in the autumn. There was just no evidence that he was turning it round. They'd have this flutter of you know, well, we're we're, all, we're we're getting back there. Oh no! And then there'd be two steps back, and uh, eventually the the use of the word betrayed in terms of in terms of the team's performance at Leicester in mid-December and betraying his hard work, betraying his tactics, um, that was the straw that, that broke the camel's back and there was no recovery from that. My memory of this is that it wasn't only that Mourinho didn't know how to solve it. I, I always got the impression that Mourinho was making it worse and that was because Mourinho loves to manage in the way where he loves a provocative grand gesture, whether it's a dropping, it's a press conference, it's a rant, something like that, just to just to you know make a bit of impact on people, whether it's the media, the owners of the club, the players, the opposition, the officials, whoever. He loves the provocative grand gesture. And this and I think as results got worse, he he was reaching for more and more dramatic grand gestures. You know, it was almost impossible, I remember, to guess the Chelsea team at points that year because uh, for every given week, a different three players would get dropped. Even if it was someone as good as like Hazard would sometimes get dropped by Mourinho, uh, basically just for effect. And yet, as he continued to like pull even harder on this lever over and over again, or hammer the button even harder, it didn't have any impact it seemed like the players were so inured to the Mourinho approach that they didn't really care what he did or said anymore. And they just continued going through the motions on the pitch. And in doing that, Mourinho basically lost his power. He lost his magic because he would do all this ridiculous stuff and the players wouldn't care. And they'd think, what on earth is he doing this time? And that, that I worry, is quite a disempowering dynamic for a manager to be in, if that's the right, if that's even a word. And this is what I really want to get onto with you know with other examples because if you think of say Manchester United 2018, it wasn't quite as dramatic as this because it had happened before because you know we all, we'd all seen it's only three years down the line that his sacking from Man United, but again it was the same rows with Paul Pogba or Alexis Sanchez or dropping players or strange 
decisions or McTominay in a back three or whatever it was, or complaining about not signing Toby or DeWeer or whatever happened to him. It was the same, the same dynamic of grand gestures, which seemingly had no impact. And I just kind of worry that we're in the same thing again. It's, it feels as like if it's happened quicker this time around. I think one of the one of the things at Chelsea was that I think the players were exhausted. I think that probably explains why his his regular chopping and changing or you know calling people out in public and he didn't do it quite as much there as he as he has done. I don't think at, as at Spurs. I mean, in the in the way that he's done with Deli Ali and and Gareth Bale, even to a certain extent of late. I mean, there, there were the occasional things. There was it was Diego Costa. Um, there was, the, you know, the sort of implied criticisms of Eden Hazard back in the day. Costa was about his weight, but generally speaking, he 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 seemed quite supportive. I think of his of his players back at Chelsea, but then didn't necessarily back that up with selections. So the team did was chopping and changing all the time, and I think that this, I think the players at the intensity of it all just crept up on the on the players. I mean, again, someone I spoke to just said, you're not always aware that you're exhausted when you're with Mourinho, but as soon as he goes, you realise you're absolutely shattered because every single day under Jose Mourinho, something happens. You're playing a game to a certain extent, whether that be, you know, being out in front of the media um, or or the, the type of performance you're having to do, the, the strategy, the tactics, it's everything. It's all-encompassing, and it just grinds you down, um, and it and it ground that team down. That When you look at the spark that Fabregas and Costa had the previous year in winning the title, I mean, it was they were utterly devoid of, of that in the second in that in that third year and in in the the the, the relegation stroke um struggle year if you, if you like and this was a team arguably as reliant upon that creative spark as spurs are in with son and and harry kane to you know i think there is another comparison you could you could draw from that but as i just think that the players has had enough it they were just shattered they were their confidence had gone they were they were physically and mentally exhausted and everything that he did just made it worse. Having just looked at uh, Manchester United's record after Mourinho left, I think they won sort of 10 of the next 12 and drew the other two. And I think I'm right in saying when he left Chelsea for the second time, they went on quite a long unbeaten run as well. An unimpressive uh, one, but it was an unbeaten run, yeah, about 15 seasons. But I mean, in comparison to the first oh, yeah, sort of yeah. the season, yeah. it's certainly good. I mean, obviously you were kind of uh, in and around the club a lot at that time. How different were the vibes before and after that fateful day you have to remember that when he got the sack just you know before the the christmas lunch had really concluded at, at chelsea in, in mid-december while there might have been a wave of relief weirdly within the playing squad the, the fans were absolutely apoplectic they were still very much pro Mourinho he was he was their greatest ever manager he was a uh, somebody they trusted and they and they they blamed they pinned the, the blame very much on the players and there was this I think rather misguided um and inaccurate um portrayal of of the three I always get this confused it's either rats or snakes depending on who you listen to yeah I'm, look, I'm looking at the banner now this rudimentary banner this is in this is in Dom's piece, so if there's if there's no other reason to subscribe, it is to look at this picture. I don't know, you know, don't know about reading the piece, but you can look at this <laughs> photograph of a Chelsea fan who's written the three rats, and then it has the numbers ten, four, and nineteen on there, which I'm guessing are the shirt numbers of Hazard, Fabregas, and is it Costa the yeah, third Costa. one? Costa. I mean, it's just it's just badly drawn. 
he hasn't, hasn't put much effort into it, let's be honest with you. But that was at the Sunderland game, and it was up there with the first game that Benitez had. I think that was, was that Manchester City, a goalless draw with City in 2012 when he was um, appointed as an interim post Di Matteo. That the poison in that stadium, Gus Hiddink was sitting up in the, the West Stand alongside Didier Drogba and Roman Abramovich. And uh, yeah, the, the locals were mutinous. They were absolutely mutinous. And it was, they pinned this entirely on, on the, the, the players. I mean, the likes of Oscar and Fabregas, who I think when, when, when they got substituted, they were the, the booze around uh, Stanford Bridge that afternoon said it all. They, inevitably, they raised their game. I think they were 3-0 up at one point against Sunderland, they ended up winning 3-1. Uh, and people, I mean, they were a bit, bit of a hiding to nothing, to be honest. I mean, if they'd lost it, they would have been condemned as as relegation um, fodder. But but by raising their game, they were seen as, as, as betraying Mourinho even more. And But it was it was a, a really dismal, dismal atmosphere around the place. And, and to be honest, I don't think that really... I mean, it wasn't quite as poisonous, but I don't think anyone... I don't think the atmosphere really improved under Hiddink that time. It wasn't like the first time when he was at Chelsea. That was There was very much a sense of a schism between support base and players um, over the rest of that season. And it really wasn't until probably the autumn of the following season when Conte started that ridiculous... switched his formation at half-time at the Emirates from 3-0 down and, and they went on that ridiculous unbeaten run and won the title that the, the club felt healed. And even then it was probably only superficially, but it was a nasty, nasty sense of underachievement. And uh, everybody around the place was just, just felt burnt, just felt scorched by the whole Mourinho experience. One comparison I want to draw between, between that example and the Tottenham example now is that I think Mourinho was quite effective at Chelsea at winning the fans to his side, even though clearly it meant the fans took his side rather than the players. You know, clearly, the way that the the way that the fans reacted to the players, as you have just described, shows that the fans sympathised with Jose ahead of the players. I think Mourinho is attempting something similar right now. That is, and it's what he did at Man United as well. That is getting the play, getting the fans to choose. Basically, do you side with me or do you side with the players? But I don't think it's working at Spurs. I think that at Spurs the. I'd be interested to hear James' take on this. I think the loyal I think at Spurs, Mourinho's attempts to blame the players for what's gone on has actually been fairly unsuccessful. Well, I mean, there's definitely some people on Twitter who will take the who take the view that, you know, it's Dyer and Sanchez's fault, they should play better. But I think a lot of people see through that. Yeah, but you can't ask a fan base to decide between the group of players who got the club to a European Cup final or the bloke who won two titles for, or three titles for Chelsea. I mean, who are they going to prefer? Though. Yeah, but, I'm, but I mean, they don't, they don't care about moving the title for Chelsea, do they? Really? I mean, that's, nowhere, no. that, yeah, that's not got the same emotional pull as it does for Chelsea fans. That was the whole justification for it at Chelsea, wasn't it? Chelsea fans would always kind of take his... I mean, I've met Chelsea fans relatively recently who have said, you know, they would still take him back. But he's the manager who's won three titles there, their first league titles yeah, for 50 years or whatever it was. So you can see why they'd be the pull there. But with Spurs, that's just not going to watch, is it? It's kind of almost an irrelevance. What he did 15 years ago at a club that we don't like. Who cares? There's always been this uneasiness to Mourinho's presence at Tottenham, isn't there? I mean, as as an ex-Chelsea manager, but more so, moreover, really, the style of football that he represented. I mean, whether that was accurate and fair on him, it's it's neither here nor there. The the fact was that people associated Mourinho with a rather dour style of football that Tottenham's, you know, pizzazz and more flamboyant style wouldn't really sit easy with that. And and I just this just feels as if this 
this recent run, really from the moment that, that good old Jeffrey Schlupp scored at Sellers Park against you, um, has, has, has sort of exposed that again and, and made it feel all the more clunky and awkward. I was just going to ask you actually how different you think, you know, having mentioned the kind of toxic atmosphere at Chelsea during that season, whether you think had there been fans in the ground, maybe, I mean, obviously the situation is different because if, if the fans were going to turn, it would probably be on Mourinho rather than the players, probably, we think. But do you think maybe that would have exacerbated the situation? Would it have been quite different had there been fans in the stadium all season? It's a really good question. Um, I'm trying to think when when fans have, have really turned against Mourinho in the past. I mean, did it happen? I'm not sure it really even happened that much at United, really. Yeah, exactly. Not in any like major way. I mean, I'm sure there were people that were unhappy and there were the kind of grumblings that you get at any ground when any manager isn't, or any manager's team isn't doing well. Yeah. But I don't think there was like a kind of big, you know, it wasn't like that kind of Benitez thing you were saying at Chelsea where it was clear that the majority of match-going fans just didn't like him and would never take to him. I don't think it was quite as bad as that. I suspect that he would have... In that scenario, he would probably come out fighting. I, I, I'd suspect he'd, he'd be full of, there'd be a bravado about him and he'd feel, well, he'd, he'd be certainly promoting the fact that this isn't his fault more than maybe that he has done of late. I mean, and I know I'm aware of what he said and he started to imply now that maybe he should have had different backing in the transfer market or, you know, that's half the reason that the, the team are enduring these problems now. But, but, I suspect, yeah, he would probably come out swinging and 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 giving it a, a go back. But I don't think he's ever really experienced it in the way that no, Peter never. did at Chelsea, for example, or or even Sari at Chelsea. I mean, God, I mean, that was even worse in, in some ways than Benitez because that was a manager that was actually their permanent solution. Yeah. And 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 the the poison, particularly at that game at Cardiff and at home to Manchester United, was fairly dismal. Another question aside from the fans is the players themselves. Like I think it's pretty clear, at least to me, that Mourinho's methods, particularly his motivational methods, do not work quite as well on the new generation of players as they did on the JT Lampard Drogba generation. I mean, clearly the JT Lampard Drogba generation, this is true of Porto and Inter as well, those guys absolutely worship Mourinho and they would run through a brick wall for Mourinho. And they did, and that's why he won he won so much. Modern players I think are a bit different, and while you know, Harry Kane clearly loves Mourinho because Kane has got that kind of Lampardy type mentality, I think. And Hoiberg as well. But a lot of the other guys are clearly less well sold than him. I mean, we should also caveat, I think Ndombele has done really well under Mourinho this year. So that's a point in the in the, in the the win column for Jose. But generally speaking, I think the Spurs players haven't reacted to him much better than the Man United players did, than the uh, Chelsea second time around players did, certainly towards the end, or even the Real Madrid players. And it, that kind of surprises me because there was a point where I thought, actually, maybe the Spurs players will like Mourinho more because they're not superstars, you know, because they're not... It's not like you're going into one of the biggest clubs in the world here, with all due respect to Tottenham, and telling the players what to do. And I wonder what it is that's what it is that's changed fundamentally that means that those players haven't quite been able to take it on board the same way. Is it to do with just modern players don't not they're not triggered the same way? You can't tell, you know, at Chelsea first time around, Mourinho would tell the players they were shit to get them to play well. Uh, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but only a bit. Whereas nowadays, I think players tend to go into that shell a bit, Dom. What do you reckon? I think there's definitely something in the the art of communication. Um, and and when you look at some of the, the managers that have had that longevity to their careers, I mean, and I'm talking real longevity, they do have that ability to to speak the same language as as, as the players that they've either inherited or brought to the club. And and that, you know, that people considerably younger than them 
it's crazy to almost to use this this example now, but but Roy Hodgson, forty six years a coach, has got a tune out of Wilfred Zaha, has got a has, has got a you know that 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 level um, has been able to communicate and get these guys to to work for his team. Okay, they they hit ceilings after a while, but I get the impression that Mourinho, yeah, may may struggle on that level with the modern day player. Although that doesn't explain, it doesn't justify the extent to which it unraveled at, at, at Chelsea in that second spot, because there was still a John Terry in that dressing room. There was still a Branislav Ivanovic in that dressing room. You know, the, he had players that had done well for him. Cesc Fabregas and, and, and Diego Costa were both around. Um, you know, it, that, there was no really excuse on, on, uh, for, for the failing to the extent that it did at, at, at Chelsea that second time around. But certainly at, at Spurs and to, la- to the latter stages at, at Manchester United, I think it has been an, an issue that, that has flared up. And it's probably it's probably a fair criticism to make of him, certainly to you know to ask the question as to whether he he can get the best out of the late the, you know the, the younger generations of, of, of talent that are coming through. Do you think there's a way out of this? Do you think that he, we're in the toxic whirlpool now and it's all it's terminal, or do you think it's just a bit of turbulence of the sort that you know City were rubbish at the start of this season? Now they're really good. You know teams do have ups and downs, and it's easy for us to forget that. Do you think this is a down before an up dom, or do you think this is the start of the end? It's a difficult season to to make an, an assessment that's that's probably fair because it's it feels such a a strange season in terms of games and behind closed doors, etc. And that I think it would, if they win the League Cup, then, you know, whether you're pro or anti Jose Mourinho, he has won a trophy for the club. And that hopefully, I'm sure he would argue, would be the first of what will become hopefully many for for them. But, But it needs something to change in the summer. And either that means that, that Daniel Levy and the board buy completely into what he wants to do and bring in bring in players that he has earmarked. So they are his players. There's no scope for argument there. These are your guys, and they will work. Uh, you know, you're getting what you want here, and and you're getting your centre halves or whatever, whatever, whatever area of the team he wants to target. Or they go the other way completely, and they 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 go down their own route, and then it is just a matter of time before they go their separate ways. Because I don't I don't think Mourinho will accept that. So it's going to be costly either way. I fear for for Levy because ultimately he's either going to have to spend an awful lot of money in the transfer market to appease a manager, or he's going to have to pay off a manager um, with whatever the compensation would be due on his contract. Um, I don't think it's, it doesn't have to be the end. It doesn't have to be the end. It's still redeemable, but. At the moment, it feels, the moment it feels like an awkward relationship that is, yeah, it's in need of some kind of uh, counselling along the way. James, what's your verdict? Uh, I mean, I'd kind of echo what Dom said there. Really, that uh, I think Mourinho would kind of point to having wanted to sign uh, Ruben Diaz and Bruno Fernandez when he first took over. I think those were the names that were kind of being suggested as targets. Yeah, and obviously, subsequent to that, we've seen both of those players be. I mean, they'll both be contenders for player of the season, probably, won't they? I would have thought for the Premier League. I would yeah, have thought probably both be in the six. So, you know, he could easily point to that and say, well, if you had spent £140 million pounds or whatever it would have taken on these two players, we'd be in a much better position now. And that's probably true. But I would say if you were expecting to uh, go into a club and be allowed to sign 
60, 70 million pound players at the drop of a hat, then you probably shouldn't take the Tottenham job because that has never been, or certainly not in the last sort of decade or so. It's not really been the way they've, it's not really been the way they've done things. And I think they had a reputation for not doing things that way. So I, I don't, I think it was sort of maybe be a bit unfair of him to be uh, expecting those things to just happen on a whim. Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of do think we might be in a tailspin a bit now. I and mean, when we talked last week about how it felt like we kind of hit a bit of a rocky patch around this time last year, when there was kind of the mitigation, obviously, of Kane and Son both being missing, but it was incredible. It was just rotten, wasn't it? It was hor- you know, players playing badly and results going badly, and it felt like we were on the cusp of that big fan turn. Um, and then obviously we all got sent home probably at the right sort of time for him at that point. And then the results improved after the lockdown. But I, I just don't see that... I can't think of a manager who's ever... Mourinho or anyone else had like the downturn then a resurgence and then gone into the, the tailspin a second time and then pulled out again a second time I mean you know for, I'm, Wenger probably had done it over the course of the, the second 10 years at Arsenal maybe but I don't think anyone would suggest that was a particularly healthy uh, experience for anyone involved really I would suspect it's probably not going to improve markedly let's put it that way whether or not that means, you know, finishing as low in the table as ninth as they are at the moment and not winning a trophy is a slightly different question. But I don't think it's going to be a reign that ends with Spurs winning the title or even coming close. Yeah, I think it would be a surprise if it improved sufficiently that Tottenham do end up challenging for the title. I mean, the, I guess the problem really with what we're going through at the moment at Spurs is that, you know, Mourinho has been there for more than a year now and... I don't, it's not like he's building towards a kind of glorious peak in his third, fourth or fifth year. Like if it was going to be good, it would be good by now. And I wonder that we've already been through the peak. Um, Back when they smashed Southampton, Man United away from home, beat Arsenal, beat Man City at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. I fear that might have been the best of it. And if it was, then I think it's all going to be slightly downhill from here. But there's a, you know... If you want to be more optimistic, 2016-17, Mourinho's first season at Manchester United, it was pretty miserable for a lot of, for a lot of that time. They ended up with the League Cup in the Europa League. You know, it's still it is still just about possible that Spurs could do that this year. And if they do that, then I think Mourinho can very plausibly say he's been a big success in the job. So it's a very broad range of outcomes that are still on the table. And it's another massive week ahead. So Spurs have got Wolfsburg at AC in the Europa League second leg on Wednesday evening. And then Burnley at home on Sunday, James, which is an, another massive game. One that they they really have to win. I mean, if they lose that, then their Premier League record will be, I think, completely unacceptable. I think it's going to get more dramatic, to be honest, and the stakes will continue to get higher. But let's wait and see. Uh, thank you very much to everyone for listening. Thank you to James and Dom for joining us today. Thank you to producer Tom, as always. And we'll be back again next week. The Athletic.